0: The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. It's uh, ambitious, perhaps, to speak about the Song of Songs, uh, let alone have to, uh, to try to address what the Song of Songs has to teach us about singleness and marriage in two short talks. Uh, Most Christians don't know much about the Song of Songs uh, because most churches haven't preached on it. And uh, sadly, some of the churches that have preached on it haven't actually helped people particularly on the subject. Um, In the ancient church, uh, people used to allegorize the Song of Songs, uh, to find fanciful meanings out of it. So, for example, for Cyril of Alexandria... Uh, he found Christ in the Song of Songs in that passage in chapter 1, uh, where the man says, uh, if only I could be uh, a sachet of myrrh between my beloved's breasts. Christ, of course, is the sachet of myrrh, and the two breasts are the two testaments, the Old and New Testament. And so what that passage teaches us is that Christ comes between the Old and New Testaments, which I don't think is exactly what the writer of the Song of Songs had in mind, Um, modern interpreters have gone to the opposite extreme and found in the Song of Songs a kind of dating and romance handbook Uh, and uh, so you have uh, Tommy Nelson's uh, Book of Romance for example which has lots of practical insights about dating and marriage but much of it is equally disconnected from what the writer of the Song of Songs had in mind just as much as Uh, the ancient church fathers. I'll leave you to conclude for yourself what it says about the church that in antiquity, when they read things into the Bible, they found Jesus, and when the modern church reads things into the Bible, it finds tips about how to live your life, whether we've really progressed at all. Uh, But... uh, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, uh, arguing for my uh, interpretation of what the song is about. I'm going to assume here uh, what I've argued at uh, some length uh, elsewhere in the handout. You, there are some resources there if you want to know more about my view on this subject. But essentially, I'm, I treat the Song of Songs as wisdom literature, I think that's where it fits. In the Bible, I think it's about two idealized people, one man and one woman, whose exclusive and committed love relationship is great, but like all loves in a fallen world, is far from perfect. But the song is designed to show us how far short of perfection we fall, both as human beings and as lovers. And thereby to drive us into the arms of our true heavenly husband, Jesus Christ, whose love for his bride is perfect. You see, I think you can still get from the Song of Songs to Jesus without having to allegorize it at all, in the same way we do for all wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is indirect law. You should do this. But I don't do this. That's why you need Jesus. Jesus did this perfectly in your place. And he covered your failure at the cross. So now go out on the basis of that gospel and start to live a new life. And so, exactly the same way we can do that with the Song of Songs. But even if the song is about human love and not simply a, a, an allegory about the relationship with Christ and the church, is the song about singleness and marriage? Uh, Many academic commentators don't think the book has anything to do with marriage at all. Uh, They see it simply as a celebration of free love. But I would argue that that also is a grave mistake. The relationship that this song describes is unique. It is intimate. It is a lifelong, jealous bond between one man and one woman. A bond that nothing short of death can separate. Now, where I come from in Britain, when something waddles like a duck and goes quack, we feel quite comfortable saying, that's a duck. So here, this unique, lifelong bond between one man and one woman, it seems to me it's appropriate to call marriage. And indeed, at the climax of the poem, the very central piece of the poem, we'll look at this later on, When the sealed garden of the woman's sexuality is about to be unsealed, that is where the man calls the woman his bride. Now, to be sure, the man calls the woman many other things in the poem that are metaphorical rather than literal. But what metaphor would somebody mean when they called somebody their bride when they're not their bride? The only way to make sense out of that word is to take it literally as describing their marriage which is the necessary prerequisite for the sexual consummation that that poem then celebrates. Okay, so the song is about marriage, but what about singleness? Surely singleness is a modern phenomenon that was virtually unknown in the ancient world. Well, that's true up to a point. We have certainly extended that phase of life from a brief period right around puberty to a lengthy period of years And in some cases, even decades before we start to think seriously about marriage. But the challenges of that phase of life are not radically different. A key audience in the song is the Daughters of Jerusalem. A group of young women who three times are counseled against stirring up love too soon before it is ready. They needed to wait before unleashing the power of sexuality in its proper context, which is, of course, marriage. And if we tend to wait longer than they did, well, all the more reason for us to heed the counsel of the song on waiting well. And so in my two talks, I want to zero in on a couple of particular passages in the song. This morning, we're going to look at the song, chapter 2, verses 8 through 17, and I've given you my translation uh, in the handout there, which addresses the subject of waiting, uh, and therefore particularly speaks to those who are single. And then this afternoon, we're actually going to look at a couple of passages, that central passage, chapter 4, verse 8 to 5, 1, and then especially chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, which explores the nature of marriage under the image that I've called friendship on fire. So let me read for us Song of Songs 2, verses 8 to 17. It begins with the woman speaking. The sound of my beloved. Look, now he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, "'Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come away. "'For look, the winter rains are past; "'the spring rains have come and gone, "'the blossoms appear on the earth, "'the time of singing has come, "'and the sound of the dove is heard in our land. "'The fig tree ripens its figs, "'and the vines are in blossom, emitting fragrance. "'Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come away. "'Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, "'in the crannies of the cliff, "'let me see your form, let me hear your voice.' For your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. And then the woman speaking again. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his, he who grazes among the lilies. Until the day comes to life and the shadows flee, turn around, my beloved, like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of better. Well, that's self-evident, isn't it? One of the agonizing aspects of being in love and not yet married is the need to wait. You know, sometimes uh, the couple may live in two different towns or even two different countries, but at other times, even though you live in the same town, there's that simple frustration of having to separate every night. You long for the day when your lives will be so intertwined that every aspect of them will be linked together. And part of that frustration, of course, is sex, uh, or rather the longing for it. Uh, when my wife and I counsel, engaged couples, sometimes they're embarrassed by how hard they find it to set proper boundaries on physical intimacy. But even while there are very good reasons to wait faithfully for the honeymoon, as this passage emphasizes, it should be hard to wait Uh, Don't be ashamed of that struggle. Be grateful, in fact, as you wrestle with those desires and strive to remain pure. On the other hand, if it's not difficult for a couple to wait for marriage when they're in a serious relationship, that could be a sign that there are important issues that need to be discussed. Perhaps one of uh, the, uh, the people has been sexually abused, and their lack of desire is not godliness but fear. Or perhaps they grew up in a home environment that communicated loudly that sex is dirty and good girls should not enjoy it. Or maybe one of the people struggles with same-sex attraction. And even though they're seeking to submit to God's design in marriage, desiring physical intimacy with the opposite sex is something that they will need to cultivate and pray for the Holy Spirit to give them. Now, there is help available in all these situations, but a lack of sexual desire could be a significant indicator that there are issues that need to be talked about, and perhaps some counseling would be helpful. But part of the problem with waiting for sex, for most, most of us, is that in our culture, we have lost the concept of waiting for anything. How many people still remember the days when you had to wait for your television to warm up? Most of you have blank faces, right? Some of the older people are saying, yeah, I remember that. You, you actually had to go five minutes before your program was on and turn the television on in order for it actually to come to light. You, you, you're looking at me. You, you don't believe this is possible back in the dark ages, right? But it's really true. And now you just turn it on and there it is. Uh, we have instantly downloadable entertainments. We have readily available fast food. We have immediate gratification of all of our desires. You know, we don't save up to buy something we want. We just put it on a credit card so we can have it right away. And we get angry if anything comes in the way of our immediate enjoyment of our desires. We don't wait for anything in our culture, period. But this particular poem is all about waiting. Waiting. Even when the time seems absolutely positively ripe, some things are worth waiting for. The passage opens with this striking image of the man as the woman sees him. Faster uh, than a bullet, stronger than a locomotive, leaping over not just uh, buildings but entire mountains in his eagerness to get to her. You can almost pick out the large S emblazoned on his chest as he bounds like a gazelle or a young stag. But then the man comes to a screeching halt. He remains outside the wall of the house, desperately peering in at the window and through the lattice, trying to make contact with her across this final frontier. And the couple's eyes meet, and, and then the man launches into this wonderfully romantic speech. That is so hauntingly beautiful that we instantly want to cross stitch it and hang it on the wall arise my darling my beautiful one and come away for look the winter rains are past the spring rains have come and gone the blossoms appear on the earth the time of singing has come and the sound of the dove is heard in our lands isn't that beautiful Now, apart from making most of us men feel totally inadequate because we've never uttered anything nearly so romantic in our entire lives, what is going on here? Well, once you strip away the flowery poetry, what the man wants the girl to do is clear because he says it twice. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come away. Verse 10 and verse 13. He wants her to leave the home of her father and mother cross the wall, and join him on the other side, out where the deer and the antelope play. Uh, What's more, the man gives a specific reason for her to make that move. The time is ripe, he says. This poem is actually tied to the previous poem in the song by this deer motif. At the end of the previous passage, the woman charged the daughters of Jerusalem by the gazelles and the does of the field not to stir up love, before it pleases. And now, uh, we see this gazelle bounding up to her to declare that the time to stir up love has finally come. How do we know that the time to stir up love has come? Well, it's springtime. The winter rainy season has come and gone. This is very much California weather, right? Uh, The seasonal spring rains have come and gone. Everything is bursting into blossom. And the marks of spring's arrival are multi-sensory. The sight of the blossoming flowers, the sound of the singing turtle doves, the fragrance of the blooms on the vines, the taste of the ripening figs, every sensation cries out the message of nature that the time is right to find a partner, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. Multiply. So why should the woman continue to be like a dove in the clefts of the rock? Doves are timid creatures. Why are they timid creatures? Well, if you were a dove, you'd be a timid creature too, right? They don't have much in way of defense mechanisms. They don't have claws. They don't have teeth. You never read news stories about toddlers being savaged by doves. (laughs) They don't even have particularly speedy flight, So for their safety, they rely on hiding in inaccessible locations, where even when you can see them, they're hard to get to. Well, so too, from the man's perspective, the woman is like a dove. She is inaccessible to him on the other side of the wall, barred away on the far side of the lattice, tantalizingly visible, but out of reach. He can see her form. He can hear her voice, both of which are lovely, but he wants more. He longs for uninterrupted sound and sight, for true and complete union. And the woman says, no. It's not that she isn't attracted to the man, far from it. That's been clear since the opening verses of chapter 1, where she declared that his caresses are better than wine. She couldn't wait for him to sweep her off her feet and carry carry her off to his chambers. Nor does the woman disagree with the declaration that it's springtime. On the contrary, she also says, our vineyards are in bloom. And she's already earlier used this image of a vineyard for her body. So she clearly understands exactly what he is getting at. And she agrees with him that both of them are physically mature enough for a relationship. But the woman develops the young man's springtime metaphor in a different direction by reminding him about the danger that foxes pose to blooming vineyards during this season. Remember, she says, that that tender new growth of blossoming vineyards is fragile and easily damaged. Now, she doesn't unpack exactly what dangers the foxes represent, perhaps because that danger is obvious enough. It is the danger that will be posed by her going outside the wall to him at that time. And at the same time, it is, uh, it's not a harsh refusal. She doesn't say, oh, I can't believe you're thinking about that. There's a slightly teasing tone in her reply. She doesn't describe the danger as a big bad wolf, but as little foxes. More of a nuisance than a fearsome threat, but the message is clear. Even little foxes can damage the vineyard blossoms, and if they do so, the long term effect on the fruit of the vineyard could be serious. It's intriguing also that the appeal to catch the foxes has a plural subject. If this was the South, she would have said, Y'all catch the foxes. There's an appeal here, I think, to the community that hovers in the background throughout the song to help the couple maintain the safety of their vineyards until the time is fully ripe for them to cross the wall and come together. There's a recognition here that purity is not simply an individual decision, but a community project. when that wall is first mentioned, she called it our wall. And it's clear that our here is not her and the man. He wants the wall to disappear. It's her and her family. The wall that protects her and him as well is a family matter, not just a personal commitment. And in spite of the woman's refusal to cross the wall and be with him at this time, she doesn't reject him. She doesn't denigrate his desires. She still declares that her lover is hers and she is his. She still depicts him as a gazelle grazing among the lilies. As so often in the song, the exact reference of that image is elusive. Are the lilies on which she imagines him grazing her lips, as in chapter 5, verse 13, or perhaps another part of her anatomy, as in chapter 7, verse 2. But at the very least, we can say that she still desires him physically, intensely. She too longs for the day when the wall will come down and all barriers between them will be gone so that she can fully be his and he can fully be hers forever. But in spite of that ongoing, aching desire, she acknowledges that the time is not yet right. Until the day comes to life, until the shadows flee away, that is, until the morning fully comes, he is going to have to leave alone. For now, her young stag is going to have to go back to the mountains from whence he came, which she calls the Mountains of Bethar. And there's a double meaning, I think, in that. On the one hand, the Mountains of Bethar are a known location west of Jerusalem, but literally that name means the cleft mountains. Now, I don't think you have to be Sigmund Freud to see a potential connection here to her breast. The connection becomes explicit later on in the song. So, even while she sends him away for the time being, the very range of mountains on which this gazelle is going to roam is going to remind both of them constantly of the destination to which they're ultimately headed, and for which both of them are longing. no is a not quite yet, my love, rather than a never. So what does this poem have to say to us in our own relationships? Well, to begin with, it clearly affirms the necessity and wisdom of delaying sexual activity. For all of the couple's eagerness to reach a consummation of the relationship, there are significant obstacles along the road. It is possible to stir up love too soon. There are little foxes that could harm their budding romance. Sometimes true love has to wait. And what is it waiting for? Well, duh. Marriage, of course. Now, this message is countercultural in our context, which, as I said, hates waiting for anything. And so the message that we receive not just from those dull and dreadfully embarrassing high school sex ed classes, but far more powerfully from contemporary movies and television sitcoms and and the songs on the radio, is that you should only wait until you are physically ready for sex. Our culture asks you, can you possibly be the only 20-year-old in America who hasn't had several sexual relationships? Now, the actual statistics of abstinence may be quite different, but that's not the message with which young people are bombarded. The only dangerous little fox that our culture recognizes is sexually transmitted disease. So provided you use a condom and practice safe sex, there's nothing to worry about. Meanwhile, conventional Christian wisdom tends to put a lot of stress on proper boundaries. And so we build dating parlors. We come up with courtship plans, body maps of appropriate touch areas. Uh, Thirty years ago, uh, uh, when I met my wife uh, on the mission field uh, in Africa. uh, And there were lots and lots of rules about what we could and couldn't do together. We were supposed to have a chaperone with us uh, at all times. And so we, after a while, started to get creative about what counted as a chaperone. Uh, Could an African houseboy be a chaperone? Could our pet monkey qualify as a chaperone? (laughs) Yeah, we're not alone. Um, I I talked uh, later to another missionary of a previous generation who said when he was with that same mission and uh, going out with his wife, uh, when they went out at night, he said the mission required them to take a a light with them, but they didn't say it had to be lit, he said. (laughs) Uh, That's part of the problem, isn't it? To this conventional wisdom, the song replies with biblical wisdom, which shows us that the problem with conventional wisdom is not that it's necessarily wrong, it's just too shallow. And so when conventional societal wisdom warns us about sexually transmitted diseases, it is right to do so. But it neglects the fact that you can pick up heart wounds from sexual activity that will never show up in a test at a clinic. There are other foxes out there that can destroy the blossoms of your vineyard. Likewise, when conventional Christian wisdom focuses all its attentions on boundaries, there's a measure of insight there. Proper boundaries are like the wall or the lattice in the poem. They can be helpful in delineating where the appropriate boundary is. But it's not the wall that keeps the woman inside. Walls have doors. They can be climbed over or tunneled under. Lattices can be forced open. The only thing that will keep her and him on the separate sides of the wall until marriage is a hard commitment that flows out of true wisdom. I think this desire for rules is true much more broadly in our lives than just in our sexuality. In many areas of life, the tendency is for us to demand guidance, often with much more specificity than anything found in God's words. How many minutes a day should I read my Bible and pray? What percentage of my income should I give to the church? Pre-tax or post-tax? How far is too far when we're dating? The problem with rules, though, is that they often lead either to pride or to guilt. So if I keep my man-made rule, then I feel proud and look down on others who don't achieve the same standards that I do. And if I fail and break that rule then I either have to change the rule to match my performance, or I feel crushingly guilty over my failure. And that's particularly true when it comes to the Christian rules for sexuality. We become past masters at justifying why a particular behavior doesn't really count sex. Or we ache with intense guilt over our repeated failure. And what this poem and the song Songs give us is not a rule... But a reason. In the face of the springtime hormones that are crying out with every fiber of our being that now is the time to be fruitful and multiply, the song reminds us of those pesky little foxes that cause very real damage and get in the way of the ultimate goal of the vineyard, which is bearing rich fruits. The farmer who invests their energy in protecting the integrity of the vineyard is not going to regret it later even though he or she won't reap the benefits of that painful perseverance until the time is fully ripe. And that's why I think it's somewhat unfortunate that so often the focus of Christian sex education is on abstinence. Yeah, abstinence, by definition, focuses your attention on what you are not doing. Abstain from anything, and the chances are you feel deprived. Deprived and tell teenagers to abstain from anything and you're almost requiring them to check it out. In the same way, the Christian fascination with purity rings is a rule-based approach that tends to make protecting your vineyard sound like a one-shot deal. Now certainly the intention to commit to a lifetime of purity is wonderful, but think about the devastating implications of such a very visible commitment. If you fail sexually, even once, you either have to turn in your ring or get very good about lying. And how many people do you know who would be willing at such a vulnerable stage of their lives to face the ignominy of taking off their rings and thereby making a public declaration to their family and friends about what just happened? And so now we add lying to sexual sins, And we become experts at justifying to ourselves why what we did didn't really count as sex and why we're still virgins in our hearts. In contrast, biblical wisdom speaks of purity in terms of watching over the blossoms in a vineyard. Vineyard tending is a long, patient process of watching and waiting in which one failure does not bring the whole endeavor to nothing. The farmer who fails does not have to give up on their vineyard as damaged goods. He or she can repent, rebuild those broken walls, and start again to watch and to wait. And equally, while uh, uh, watching over the walls is important in vineyard tending, it's not the only thing. Vineyard tending is really about taking care of tender blossoms, And this means that tending your sexual vineyard is not just about refraining from actual physical sexual intercourse. It's also about protecting your mind from habitual lust or romantic fantasies or pornography. All of which can have short and long-term damaging effects. You can have a vineyard whose walls are still intact. Technically, you're still a virgin and can wear the ring, but whose blossoms have been trampled into the muddy dirt in all kinds of other ways. And this watching and waiting over the vineyard is not an end in itself. It has a wonderful purpose. The goal is at the end of the process to be able to present your vineyard to your lover in full bloom so you can both graze among the lilies without regret and without remorse. And the intensity of that waiting makes the final consummation all the more glorious. Instead of leading to guilt or to pride, sexual failure should lead us to repentance and restoration. While God-enabled purity should bring us profound thankfulness for God's grace and mercy that protected us against ourselves. So how do we help one another to protect those tender blossoms in the vineyards? How do we rebuild and restore those vineyards that are broken down? Well, to begin with, as couples enter relationships, we need to focus on reasons and not just rules. Rules can be helpful to set boundaries, but uh, only if you already know the reasons why you have set those rules. Otherwise, one or both of you is going to keep chipping away at those rules until you find yourselves much further along that road to physical intimacy than you'd expect it. But if you both know and remind yourselves regularly why you are waiting, so you can joyfully present your vineyard to your spouse within marriage without damage or regret, that will help you keep the boundaries in their proper places. Don't expect yourselves as a newly minted couple, to have the wisdom that you need. The wise farmer does not rely upon catching all those little foxes himself. He calls in his friendly neighborhood pest exterminator, (laughs) Foxbusters. Well, so too, we were not made to live as individuals or even as couples, but in community where we share wisdom together. We need others to shed light into our blindness, to help us make good decisions. And so for those who are entering relationships, you need to get advice from wise older people as to what good boundaries are, have people praying for you specifically. And for some people, that godly wisdom can come from their parents, while others will have to search out other godly older people to guide and to help them. And we should expect to make provision for our weakness. Expect yourself to be weak. So don't put yourself in situations where the temptation is going to be overwhelming. I've had couples uh, tell me that after graduation they plan to live in an apartment together, but they're not going to have sex. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me how that goes in six months' time. You know, that's like inviting the foxes over to camp out in your vineyard, but persuading yourself that they're not going to touch the blossoms. We are weak people who are easily led astray, and our sexual drives are very powerful. So be wise about the the plans that you make about when and how you spend time together. So far, though, I've talked as if, watching over your vineyard, preparing for a future harvest, as if that final outcome is guaranteed. I've made it sound as if every good farmer who tends his or her vineyard carefully will enjoy the fruit of those long, hard labors. But what about those who are single long-term? What about those who struggle with same-sex attraction? Those same sexual desires may be there, but there is no plausible end to their waiting in sight. They don't see any way in which those blossoming vines that they're tending will ever bear fruit in a biblically approved sexual relationship. So why should they continue to take care of their vineyard? If that's you, you know exactly what the writer of Proverbs means when he says... Hope deferred makes the heart sick. To you not yet seems to me never. Meanwhile your springtime is turned to summer, your summer to autumn, the flowers fade, the blossoms drop from your vines, and there is no fruitful harvest. You know, under those circumstances watching and waiting can easily seem like so much wasted labor. But I would suggest there are at least two reasons for us still to watch and to wait. The first, less important reason, is that God may surprise us with an unexpected relationship. People who have been single for many years do finally meet a godly spouse. Men and women who struggle with same-sex attraction or other kinds of sexual brokenness do, in many cases, get successfully married to a person of the opposite gender. There is, after all, a great deal more to a marriage than sex. So don't discount God's remarkable ability to confound your doom and gloom predictions for the future. He is, after all, the God who does far more than all we can ask or imagine. But the second, the far more important reason is that whether or not we ever get married and find a beautiful and legitimate outlet A God-given desires, there is a greater lover for whom we are waiting. I mean, no mere human being can really leap over mountains and bound over hills. That's poetic hyperbole, isn't it? But if you're a Christian, you have a lover who truly loves you just like that. There is a God who desires you so passionately that he has moved heaven and earth to have a relationship with you. There is a heavenly bridegroom who doesn't just gaze at you longingly from a distance, but who bursts through the walls that you have erected to keep him out so that he can sweep you off your feet. The powerful sexual desires that God has given to cement us together in marriage are only a pale reflection of just how passionately, just how intensely God desires to be bonded to us. In Isaiah 5, the prophet sings a song of his beloved who had a vineyard. And this beloved took perfect care of that vineyard. He dug it. He cleared it of stones. He fertilized it. He built a wall around it. He put a watchtower in the middle of it to keep away the foxes and other intruders. He did everything for it. But when it came harvest time, that beloved found only a few sour and bitter grapes on his vines. Isaiah, of course, was describing God's love relationship with his people Israel. But he could just as easily have been describing the Lord's relationship with you or with me, couldn't he? The Lord has given us so much. He has taken such good care of us. He has given us such abundant gifts. Beauty, intellect, wealth, talent, opportunity, relationships, life itself. But what fruit have we borne for him? Wild and sour grapes. Specifically in the area of their sexuality, he has given each of us this beautiful vineyard to watch over and we have raised down the wall we've invited the foxes in for a party we have planted thorns and thistles and turned the whole thing into a muddy sordid mess some of us have ruined our vineyards with sex outside marriage others through lust or pornography or illicit fantasies while still others are perhaps proud that we have preserved the sanctity of our vineyards but we haven't really protected them. We've just despised them. You know, hating sex, closing down the vineyard completely is just another way of destroying a good gift that God has given us. Any typical landowner would call in the police to arrest tenants who did that to his property. But God is not any normal landowner. Instead, he sent his own son to rescue and to redeem his tenants from their own falling. And so Jesus came from the vast glory and perfection of heaven. And he entered this muddy mess of a world in order to rebuild his vineyards. He came as a normal man with normal sexual desires that he knew he would not be able to fulfill. But Jesus... Guarded his vineyard perfectly, watching over it, waiting. In his case, not for the sake of a future earthly bride, but for the sake of his heavenly bride, the church, the bride that he had chosen for himself, who had no beauty of her own because she has not kept her vineyards. She, we, are grimy, dressed in the filthy rags of our abused sexuality. And the beloved came to clothe us in beautiful garments of his faithful watching and waiting so that on our wedding day we could be presented pure and spotless without blemish. Beautiful beyond description. This is the lover for whom we are all watching and waiting. Whether we are single or married, whether we are hopeful or hopeless, whether we are straight or struggling with same sex attraction, this is the lover who now calls us to maintain our vineyards as best we can and who promises to aid us in our struggle. We quoted that proverb earlier hope deferred makes the heart sick. Some of you know all too well what that feels like. Some of us are sick of watching and waiting, and we've given in to many temptations. The fantasies of our hearts and our minds reveal the fact that even though we say we're waiting for Jesus, in reality, our longing is simply to find a man or a woman who will make us feel good. We have sick hearts as well as solid vineyards can there really be hope for people like us? But that proverb goes on. Desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You see, we're not just to watch and to wait and to guard our vineyards for the sake of an earthly harvest, for the sake of some wonderful vintage marriage to a good Christian man or woman. That's a beautiful desire if that's God's plan for you. And God's grace is so often so much greater than we deserve. He can restore the broken-down vineyards. He can replant the blossoms that the foxes have eaten. And in His kindness, God often treats us so much better than we deserve. In His grace, He will even use our sexual sin to grow us and to glorify Himself, to humble us, to show us our need of Him to show us the beauty of the gospel that could love people like us. But it's not just for this life that we're to guard our vineyards against the foxes. There is an ultimate harvest. There is a tree of life whose fruit we will taste on the last day when Jesus' is waiting and hours finally comes to an end with the return of the bridegroom to claim his bride. On that day, He will come leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills to claim his people. On that day, there will be no more wall to separate us, no more looking and longing from a great distance. On that day, our cold and wandering hearts will finally be transformed and made whole, and we shall behold the loveliness of his form with our own eyes. On that day, it will be springtime and harvest altogether. As Jesus says to us, his people, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come away. For look, the winter rains are past. The spring rains have come and gone. The blossoms appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The sound of the dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. The vines are in blossom, emitting fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come away. Let me ask you today: Have you heard and responded to that invitation? Can you say today about Jesus, "My beloved is mine, and I am His forever and forever"? Today, He calls you to come and lay down your heart before Him. Don't let your sin and brokenness keep you away, because He died to pay for those sins. Don't let your attempt at goodness keep you away. You could never be good enough to match up to God's perfect standard. Come to the beloved who calls you. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come away. And in the meantime, as we battle hearts that wander so much more than they wait, we've been given the word and the sacraments to help us as a community. We gather around the scriptures week after week And we are reminded that God loves us with such intensity that He was willing to watch His only begotten Son be tortured to death for us. As we gather around the Lord's table, as we break the bread, as we share the cup, we rehearse that truth once again His body was broken for me, His blood was shed for our redemption. His arms stretched open wide to receive the sexually broken, David and Bathsheba, Hosea's wife, Goma, the woman of Samaria who'd gone through five husbands already and was now living with another man, the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, the woman who was taken in the very act of adultery, the list goes on and on and on, and it includes you and me. Broken people with devastated vineyards, welcomed by his grace into a new family of forgiveness, hope, and life. Broken people who know they have no righteousness of their own to offer find hope in the righteousness that Jesus Christ himself provides for his bride. We wait but waiting is not forever. So wait with patience for that great day when your hopes will finally be fulfilled. Look forward to the wedding feast that is yet to come when all of life's disappointments and failures and sins will be passed and we will joyfully drink the wedding cup of the new covenant in heaven with Jesus. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come as broken people. None of us has tended our vineyards as we ought. uh, And uh, we've reaped the consequences in many cases. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy. A God who forgives sin and wickedness and iniquity and goes on forgiving it. And who takes our stained and filthy garments and takes them off us and reclothes us with beautiful festival garments that are the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us with that reality. That you would stir our hearts to rebuild the broken walls. To, to watch carefully against the dangers of the little foxes. To guard our sexuality as best we can and to do so because we are waiting for a greater bridegroom who is yet to come. We long for that day, and we pray that it will be soon. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2016 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.